Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, I want to talk about a conundrum. On the one hand, almost every leadership book that you see today talks about empowering teams, caring about people, rounding out your rough edges, and in effect, being a kinder, gentler person. But on the other hand, there are a number of leaders with completely challenging, obsessive personalities that have accomplished amazing things. Steve Jobs comes to mind, for example. So the challenge for today, when is this obsessiveness, which I'm going to define as dogged persistence of excellence, singular focus, an obsessive drive, and often a bit of a take-no-prisoners attitude, when is that obsessiveness helpful, and when does it damage performance? And equally importantly, if you're working with or leading someone who's obsessive, how do you get the best out of that person and avoid the worst? My guest today is Robert Shaw. Robert is a management consultant specializing on focusing on developing and implementing organizational practices that increase long-term profitability, and in particular, supporting the development of high-performing senior leaders in their teams. He's worked across a number of industries, pharmaceuticals, telecommunications, industrial products, defense, power utilities, consumer goods, to name a few. But more importantly for our discussions today, he has authored and co-authored this book, All In, How Obsessive Leaders Achieve the Extraordinary Results. He's also co-author of Extreme Teams, Why Nexar, why I should say it correctly, Why Pixar, Netflix, Airbnb, and other cutting-edge companies succeed where most fail. Another one is Leadership Blind Spots, and there is always uh, trust Overcome the weaknesses that matter, trust in the balance, and I'm losing track of all of them. They go on for forever. So, Robert, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's a pleasure. That's quite an impressive list of books. I am very um, intrigued by all of your writing, but more so intrigued by this notion about these leaders that you've been following and the successes they've achieved. Why does this topic matter to you? Well, as you mentioned, one of my books looked at highly innovative teams, And examining those teams, one of the things I uncovered was that they were founded by leaders who were what we call obsessive, completely consumed with the task at hand and the vision they had. And so I took a deeper look at those leaders and wanted to understand why obsession was a common trait among them, what were its benefits and what were its downsides. And a good example of that is Elon Musk, who I profile in my book. And there's a story about Musk when he's having problems with the launch of his Model 3 car, which is the most important vehicle in their lineup and they were having production problems. And what Musk did is he went and lived in the plant, spent weeks there working 14 hour days, rolling up his sleeves, solving the problems that were critical to the success of his company. And to me, that typifies what these leaders are like in their level of commitment, uh, their level of relentless drive. And that's what the book focuses on. What can we learn from these leaders? So do you ever see innovative teams that are not led by an obsessive leader? Uh, There are teams that are led by um, what we call um, more normal leaders, if you will. And the 
part of the task is what are they trying to accomplish? If the task is not extreme or extraordinary, you don't need this type of behavior. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that obsessiveness is not always required or even helpful. But in cases where you're trying to do something extraordinary, for example, Musk is trying to put people on Mars. Jeff Bezos created a company that is second to none in its customer focus. Those teams and those companies require this type of behavior. So the answer to your question is yes, but in the cases where you're trying to achieve the extraordinary, no, I see these leaders as more the norm than the exception. So there's a bit of where there's massive innovation that's going on. It's extraordinary goal that we set out for ourselves, enormous reach, complex processes. It's in those cases that you find these obsessive, quote unquote, leaders are more effective than average leaders. Well, think about if you're trying to accomplish something extraordinary. First of all, you're going to encounter a number of obstacles along the way. And again, let's go back to Musk launching um, electric vehicles. He's going up against multi-billion dollar companies that have entrenched processes and, and, um, and market share. And he's trying to launch a car company, which hadn't been done in 50 years to any great extent in the United States. So you're going to have obstacles along the way. Second thing is you're going to have a host of critics. And you have to have a, the willingness to withstand the adversity that you're going to encounter, not only from the work itself, but from those who are saying that you're not going to be successful. So in these cases, and you look at the companies these people have created, you mentioned Steve Jobs, Elon Musk at Tesla, uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon. These leaders have created world-class companies that employ hundreds of thousands of people and in essence make our life better as a result of that. Some might disagree with you, but I still think they're fascinating leaders. And I, for one, am kind of impressed with what they've achieved and buyer in a number of cases. All right, so let's go, let's take a step back. We've been talking about assessiveness using my definition at the very beginning. Let's go back to what's your definition. How do you define obsessive leaders? Two traits that I look for. The first one is a singular or all-consuming focus. And the second is a relentless drive. And those two are related, but you need both of them in order to be obsessive in the way I'm describing it. And, and a couple of examples of that. Uh, when Jeff Bezos was a child, he went to a Montessori school as a young child. And his teachers came back to his mother and said, your son is very focused. When he's involved in a task, we have to pick up the chair with him in it and move it to the next task. And the people that work with Bezos over his life said he typified or demonstrated that behavior throughout his career. And then the second is the um, unrelenting drive. And again, back to Bezos, when he founded Amazon, he thought about a number of different names for the company. And one of them was Relentless.com. <laughs> and in the book I open with that, if you go to Relentless.com, it takes you to the Amazon website. Now, Bezos, I think, justifiably thought that wasn't a good name for a company, but he kept the site. And the reason I think he did it, he wanted to remind his future colleagues this was required for success. So those are the two traits. You have to have singular focus, even to the point which you mentioned, um, excluding other important areas of your life. And then you have to have the drive to make that obsessive vision a reality. Okay. All right. So do you find, as all, out of all the leaders that you've studied with this obsessiveness, so singular focus and relentless drive, is that a trait that is pretty much part of them from childhood, as you described with Jeff Bezos, or is it something that develops over time when they get focused on this extreme results that they want to achieve? There's a debate in the literature about um, finding your vocation or calling, which is related to obsessive drive and, and the like. 
And the two sides of it, one is the obsession chooses you, you don't choose it. And that's what Bezos believes. And there are other people who argue that you develop it over time as you experience life and um, learn more of what you prefer or not. My belief is that it's a personality trait that's somewhat inherent that can be developed, but some people have it more than others. And the leaders that have it, the trick is finding the obsessive um, area that's going to be productive for them and society at large. So uh, the, uh, the quality of obsessiveness is one that you can develop, but I think some people just have more of a capability. And the analogy I draw in the book is that everyone wants to be a loving individual and care about other people, but some people are just more capable of that. They have more of an ability to love others than others. That's not saying that others can't do it. I think the same thing with obsessiveness. And then one of the challenges is if that's not in your nature, you may think that's a good thing, but you may also regret that. So part of it is understanding what you're obsessive about. And then if you have that, how do you manage it effectively? Okay. All right. Let's talk for a minute. Um, I want to talk about the positive sides, but I can't resist. You've teased it now twice. (laughs) Does this obsessiveness always work out? Are there cases where this singular focus and relentless drive just leads to a disaster? Well, many people are familiar with the concept of grit. Angela Duckworth at Penn talks about it. And she defines that as operating with purpose and persistence. What I found back to our opening discussion is that these leaders are far beyond gritty. They are consumed with the task at hand. So there are significant downsides to obsessiveness, unlike grit, because Duckworth says that basically more grit is better and you're not going to suffer many consequences. What I find with the obsessive leaders to your question is there are real consequences and very real downsides that you have to recognize and manage, both as an individual and the organization that employs these individuals or has them in leadership roles. So your question about, is there an example of that? The one that I profile in the book is Travis Kalanick at Uber and the mistakes he made as he pursued the growth of that company. And it's a fascinating case because Uber wouldn't be Uber without Travis Kalanick, but he almost um, destroyed the company as well with some of his excesses and misdeeds um, as he pursued that growth of uh, the company they love so much. Yeah, yeah, we can come back to that one. All right, so let's back up to, there are a fascinating number of cases and all of which we see most of the time in the news. And we hear some of the positive stories about them and think, you know, how amazing it would be to own stock in that company in particular. But we rarely think about what it would be like to work for that individual. So um, tell me a little bit about a couple of the examples that you particularly like and what made them who they are and what it was like to work with them. In terms of the leaders themselves. Leaders themselves. Uh huh. Well, they, the two that I mentioned already that I profile is Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And probably the simplest way to put it, they're very tough individuals to work for. Um, they're consumed with the tasks that they have. In Bezos' case, it's providing um, exceptional customer service. And if you think about a few days ago, I ordered something from Amazon. Is at my doorstep in two hours? How do you do that? And with Elon Musk, it's creating a car that's significantly better than any conventional car that you can buy. So working for them is not an easy uh, task. And in working in these companies, it's not easy as well. So part of the first challenge is, do you decide you want to work with them? Because you know it's going to be incredibly demanding, and both of them are upfront about that. So in the case of Musk, if you look at what he's done, he's changed the whole industry. Um, the electric cars are now become the, um, the uh, pursuit of all the major manufacturers, and I'm convinced that wouldn't have happened without Elon Musk. Right. We would still be driving internal combustion engines with no uh, belief that they're going to be phased out. 
now the expectations are within 10 or 15 years, probably the majority of cars are going to be electric cars. So Musk has done an incredible job of um, changing the whole industry. And the same with Bezos in terms of what he's done in the internet space. So both of them have been exceptional. Both of them are very tough individuals to work for. And um, part of what I profile in the book is I have tremendous respect for them, but I also show their downsides. Right. So if I'm working for either one of them, what's it going to take for me to work with them, beside them, underneath them, maybe not even as a direct report, but let's say one step removed. What do I have to get straight in my own head? Well, first thing you get to decide whether you want to join the company. I know some people who have interviewed um, with Tesla and decided not to take the job Mm -hmm. because part of what they tell you in the upfront interview is this is not a 40-hour week job. Mm -hmm. We expect you to work weekends. We expect you to work long hours. And the way Musk puts it is you don't put a person on Mars with a 40-hour work week. Mm-hmm. So once you've made that decision that you're in, then you're in. And you have to have understanding of the requirements. It's not only just hours. This isn't FaceTime. This is being able to deliver as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be um, uh, comfortable with that expectation. And then I think in a broader sense, your family and your friends and your social life has to be adjusted accordingly. Now, some people are willing to make that compromise, which I understand. But if you work for them, that is the expectation. Okay. Um, so I'm going to be expected to put in enormous hours. I'm going to be expected to be under pressure, to be comfortable with that being under pressure and having to deliver. And probably whatever it is that I deliver, I'm going to need to deliver better because there will be an unrelenting pursuit of making it better and better and better, regardless of how good it was I came up with the first time. Yeah, well so said. That's the I, I got to take that and be willing to go with it. It takes a pretty tough skin and a lot of self-confidence in myself and a lot of passion about what it is I'm doing for this company, okay? When do the dark sides, where do the dark sides of Jeff and Elon start to show up? Well, they've shown up a little bit more in Elon than they have in Jeff, but there are some similarities as well. The first one is the risk of burning out not only oneself, which Elon is more prone to than Jeff, but also burning out one's team. And if you look at the turnover, for example, at Tesla, it's fairly high. Mm-hmm. So one dark side is the leader um, is at risk of burnout. And then also those who work with the leader are at risk of burnout because of the demands. And in some cases, you find people will do it for a few years and they can't take it anymore. And interestingly enough, some of them say it was the best experience of their life, but they wouldn't want to do it again. <laughs> or or the, more accurately, they might say they do it again, but they don't want to do it moving forward. And there's a great quote um, from an individual who worked with Steve Jobs on the development of the Macintosh. He said, it cost me almost everything in my life, my marriage, relationship with my children, and my own health. And by the same time, it was the most exciting period of my life. So the, the consequence there is fairly significant. Um, the second one is in terms of some cases, there are um, potential ethical violations. And in Jeff and Elon's case, I don't see that. But in, in the Kalanick case, there's a temptation to win at all costs. Mm-hmm. And if you're not careful, you push so hard that you forget some of the boundaries that you have to respect. So none of those individuals were convicted of any illegal activity. But in the case of Kalanick, it came close on a number of cases. Right. So that's, right. a, that's another risk that's very real and one that you have to manage. And not only the individual has to manage it, but the organization has to manage it as well. Because these individuals are so consumed with the task and so driven to achieve it that in some cases they can go too far. Right. Right. 
Well, there were some early accusations, I think, of Steve Jobs in doing exactly that, wasn't there? Um, you know, sort of pushing competition to the side in some interesting ways. The, again, it was um, accusations and, and more about his behavior, particularly even within Apple, how he treated some of the other groups that he thought were draining resources away from his projects. Um, and he created what the board felt was a divisive culture within Apple and wasn't quite fired, but he was, um, if you will, demoted and he quit. So you think of the board that ended up firing Steve Jobs. And now in retrospect, it's easy to say, it's probably the worst decision a board's ever made. But part of it was his behavior created some factions within the company that the board thought were unproductive. So part of what your theme here, and you've talked about from the opening is, how do you manage these individuals in a way that you maximize what they offer, but you recognize the downsides. Yeah. And the, the book is not a glorification of obsessiveness. It's saying that there's tremendous upside, but there's tremendous downside. So you have to think about both as an individual and as a company, how you manage it. Okay. All right. So let's do this in the individual case. Let's assume that I'm a leader and I have somebody underneath me who is has this obsessive quality. And again, by that, we mean this singular focus. I cannot get them off that focus. That's what they're just razor sharp on. We have to pick the chair up and move them. It's a great image to get them to do something else. And this um, sort of unrelenting pursuit. They just relentless drive. Yes. Well, let what me, do to manage them? Yes. Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, let's say you have a critical project for the success of your company. Mm-hmm. And you have two people. One of them is consumed, obsessive as we're calling it, with the work. It's all she does. She has no social life. She works over the weekends. She, her whole life is committed to making this project success. The second individual is equally talented, but at five o'clock she goes home. She doesn't work on the weekends. And she basically has a very active social life. Who do you select to lead the project? You know, so you like the consumption in some ways, so long as it doesn't destroy all the collaboration you've got to have to make this project really work. Right. So which one ultimately is going to deliver with the least amount of effort from me may well be a blend somehow of the two. But let's say you have to choose. Hmm. Knowing what I've given you so far. Hmm. Hmm. You probably opt for the consumed person. I would. At least initially. Yeah. But to your point about the risk, I know of a marketing executive who fit that profile. It was a part of a uh, leading important project. And he had to work with outside vendors, um, advertising firms and the like. Yeah. He was so intense that he alienated the vendors. And they went to the senior management and said, we don't want to work with him anymore. To your point about collaboration. And he was eventually fired. Right. right. And here's an individual who cared more about the project than anybody else. Right. But his behavior got in the way of making that project success because he couldn't collaborate. So I like your point. One of the keys is you want someone who's all in, as I titled the book. But at the same time, that person has to be able to work with others. Otherwise, you can't scale the obsession. Right. Well, I was going to say, of all the leaders that you studied who'd been successful, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and ultimately Steve Jobs, and we could name others, they were they own they ended up having to craft the company around themselves. They did. So that people either follow those individuals or get out. And that's basically the only path forward. Well, follow doesn't necessarily mean that they're um, overly authoritarian. They have strong views, but at the same time, they're willing to take input. And if the idea is better than their own, they'll accept that. So 
Um, they're not easy leaders to work with, but if you have an idea that's better than their own, um, that can carry the day. But I like your point in terms of they created a culture that fit their obsessiveness. So if you're working for someone, back to your earlier question, and that person has that trait, part of the answer is what's the culture? And if the culture is one that doesn't value that trait and teamwork, for example, in and of itself is more important, that person may have a hard time. I'll give you an example. In some companies that I looked at, they don't want people emailing over the weekend. In fact, if you email over the weekend, it's a demerit. You violated the norm because they, they want people to recharge. There are other companies, if you don't respond to an email over the weekend, it's career limiting. Mm -hmm. So part of it is the culture. So right. back to your question, if you have somebody that works for you, first thing I want to understand is what's the culture in which he or she is working and what's going to be effective in that culture. The second thing I would say is some people go at this in terms of you need better work-life balance, but for obsessive people, their work is their life. So to go at them with that is not meeting them where they are. And the way I would approach it is how can you be more effective at what cares, what matters the most to you? So is, is your obsessiveness getting in the way of the work? And back to the example I gave you earlier, the marketing executive, he needed to understand that he was getting in his own way. So it's not trying to get him to be um, uh, taking three days off when he doesn't want to take three days off. And even Elon Musk said he didn't take vacations for 10 or 15 years because he was miserable on vacations. So some of it is understanding what's most important to them and then giving them coaching about how they can be more effective in their jobs not necessarily uh, balancing their lives in the way many other people might want them to do. I have seen, in fact, I have coached a number of people who tend more towards the obsessiveness scale about their work than the opposite end. And they end up being a bit of a nightmare to their colleagues around them because they're really smart. They sort of tend to see the options, the solutions, the answers faster than anybody else. Right. Kind of have a take no prisoners. I mean, they run out of patience really rapidly for people who can't get it and can't move on and aren't willing to up their own game every day and get better and better and better, who aren't thinking about the problems that we're facing and trying to do something about it. They just, you know, like when somebody wants to put a roadblock in the way and it isn't logical, they just want to run right over the top of it. And that's a bit of their personality. Now, if they're on the team with me, that makes them great at breakthrough ideas, solving client problems, I mean, a whole host of good things. It makes them a nightmare, though, if I'm providing support services or trying to collaborate with them. So I've gotten involved in a number of these cases where you're coaching someone who is of this style. And the end, I think, with the solution that has always worked for me is to appreciate the passion that comes with the style appreciate the value that it comes with the individual, but to get them focused on the fact they can't do it alone. They can't deliver the results they want alone. And they've now got to figure out what is going to bring a larger group of people with them along the journey and talk specifically about how to get the outcome they want through some other people. Yeah. I talk about this as scaling the obsession. You're mm -hmm. not going to be successful if you can't build a team in the case of Amazon or Tesla, an organization that has an equal degree of passion and drive and talent and so on. So scaling, it's very important. Otherwise, you just become a visionary who can't realize his or her goal. Okay. The thing about the um, obsessive individual is they have very limited patience, to your point, for people who can't contribute. And in the most extreme cases, they see other people as a means to an end. Yeah. So yeah. when they're interacting with teammates, they're basically saying to themselves, if not the other individual, 
can you get me where I want to go? And if you can't, I have no patience for you. Right. So part of what you have to do with individuals, assuming they're talented and um, uh, committed to the organization, is surround them with equally talented people, if it, to the degree possible. And what you find in a lot of these firms, they're very tough in terms of talent because they know that the most talented people won't tolerate mediocrity. In fact, Elon Musk was asked at one point, they said that you don't tolerate fools very easily. And he goes, should I? Why should I do that? I'm trying to create a phenomenal product. So if you're not careful, it becomes arrogance and condescending and it doesn't facilitate teamwork. So you have to meet that and understand where it's coming from. And then in some cases, they have to understand they're not going to get there if they don't temper their style somewhat. Yeah. All right. So you said arrogance there. And that was one of the questions I want to ask you. A lot of the you know people that we think about as being obsessive leaders tend to have a very high view of themselves, perhaps warranted, perhaps sometimes not always warranted. We might use the word egotistical to fit that equation, or we might, you know, use narcissism in one form or another, I mean, various things. What's your view after studying all these leaders? Is it an outsized ego? Are they narcissistic? Is that what it comes with, the price? I would say yes and yes. So then the question becomes, is it counterproductive? I've never seen a leader striving to accomplish something significant that isn't egotistical. It's just, it goes with the territory. If you have outsized ambitions, you're going to have a fairly large ego. And the other thing that's interesting is that people who are that confident, even to the point of arrogance, people are often more willing to follow them. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they follow if someone is condescending or punishing, but extreme confidence begets followership to a degree, even to the point where it's inappropriate. So we can talk more about that, but my belief is that you have to have the ego to begin with. And then you have to understand the downsides, particularly in terms of blind spots you might have as a leader as a result of that. All right. So perfect. That's a perfect place for a break, Robert. I, this is just absolutely fascinating to me because it is a conundrum in the literature. We talk about being this all things to all people We talk about bringing the organization along with you, which means that you bring it at the pace that the organization wants to go, not at your own pace. But as you rightly point out, some of these extreme achievements are done because they're led by teams who are obsessive, meaning they've got this singular focus on one thing and they've got a relentless drive to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And as you also said, they're a little bit immune to the criticism that others have of them. Because they've got the singular drive and the relentless focus, singular focus and relentless drive, I guess I should say. And so that is going to make them arrogant, overly confident, at least in the external view of, but it's also going to get them to keep going after something. So perfect pause. My guest today is Robert Shaw. As you've heard, Robert's a management consultant who works with a lot of different teams on high performance senior leaders. The book we're talking about is All In, How Obsessive Leaders Achieve the Extraordinary. And we'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk about what to do if you happen to be one of these people who's a little bit more obsessive. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? 
For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Robert Shaw. Robert is a management consultant who works with high-performing senior leaders and their teams. He's the author of one book that we're talking about in particular today, All In, How Obsessive Leaders Achieve the Extraordinary. But he's also the author of a number of other books. This time, let me see if I can get the titles correct. One is called Extreme Teams, Why Pixar, Netflix, Airbnb, and Other Cutting-Edge Companies Succeed Where Most Fail. He's also the author of Leadership Blind Spots, Trust in the Balance, and Organizational Architecture, plus numerous articles in various places. We have been talking about obsessive leaders, and obsessive, according to Robert's definition, are leaders who have a singular focus, meaning you cannot push their mind off of that area of focus, I don't care how hard you try, combined with a relentless drive. They care about it, they really want to do it, and they're not giving up. And as we've said, that leads to a fairly strong personality that has a bit of an outsized ego, put whatever words you'd like for it on there, because it means that they have super confidence in themselves. Um, No patience for people who don't have great ideas and who are not talented in their own areas. And uh, because they want to surround themselves by people who are great, there's a place they want to get to. And the question is, can you as an individual working with or for me help me get where I want to go or not. 
And that, that super confidence also invites followership, even if we might not love that idea that confidence drives followership. In this particular case, it does, at least to a point, as we've described so far. So, Robert, I want to start with a story about Elon Musk. So, tell us about that one. Well, you've been talking about the, um, both the upsides and downsides of this um, character trait. And one of the things you look at is, can the leader um, learn over time how to maximize that while minimizing the downsides? And there's a story that Musk tells about himself in his early ventures, and he was part of PayPal and other startups before Tesla. And he told a story where the programmers came in with code that was written poorly, that was taking them too long. So Musk went in and rewrote the code himself. And one of the things you find about some of these leaders, in fact, most of those that I've studied, they can be micromanagers. They're not sitting distantly. They're actively involved in the nuts and bolts, the details of the business. So Musk tells a story. He went in, wrote the code, did it very quickly, much better than they produce. But he learned he alienated the programmers whose code he just rewrote. So he said that it was the right thing to do, but it had long-term consequences in terms of the motivation of those individuals and the ability to retain them. So I think one of the keys is, can these leaders learn that their style has downsides and then how do they temper it over time and become even more effective as leaders? All right. So what have you seen works in terms of getting these leaders to learn, to take a look at the downsides and to find another way of adjusting? Part of it is them to be able to stand back and often a coach can be helpful or a confidant on the team, in some cases, even family members to stand back and look at the downsides. And usually they gain the insight from experience. They do things that cause consequences they didn't anticipate. And then they painfully look and say, can I do this differently, but get the same results. Now, Travis Kalanick, back to Uber, we talked about earlier as an example of that. And he said, as he um, matured as a leader, he was learning and he's come to become a more um, a mature and effective leader. But the problem there is it took too long. By the time he came to that insight, uh, he had lost the confidence of his shareholders. He had lost the confidence of many of his employees. The media turned against him. So the question I always ask is, can you learn fast enough to make sure that your style doesn't become an impediment rather than an asset? And we, you know, typically as coaches and as develop people developers, we do things like 360 assessment to show leaders who don't want to hear it otherwise the consequences, how people feel about working for them. Do you find that works with these obsessive leaders? Are they open for 360 feedback? In some cases they are, but there's also back to our earlier discussion around the ego. It can prevent them from listening to some of that. There was a quote that I used in one of my earlier books where a CEO said that I didn't become the CEO and the success that I am by listening to other people. They listen to themselves primarily. Mm-hmm. So they're open to that, but it's not going to be an easy dialogue because they're so self-confident and they've overcome so much criticism. Yeah. That they've learned to temper what other people have to say and trust their own judgment above all else. Usually where it starts to impact them is when customers start to react or when partners and shareholders start to react, then they become much more focused and concerned about the downsides of their approach. So I would assume that this comes when they start to see that they can't get what they want. Right with a modus operandi, and then right. they have to begin to say, how else am I going to get what I want? And you're, I have seen personally that the 360 feedback is rarely effective. First off, you have to make sure that you've gotten feedback from people that individual respects and cares about. Otherwise, it gets discounted. And even then, it's amazing how much they can discount 
you know, by saying things like, yes, but they don't know all the details. So there's, there's always that way to discount the 360 feedback. So it's hard to get it. I, I agree to an extent. I think 360 feedback can be effective, but you have to have someone helping the leader process that and be fairly forceful. And the leader has to trust that individual. Right. The other thing that I find is that these leaders need a small cadre of advisors. Um, it can be, again, internal advisors or external, but you find in the case of most of them, they have one or two people. Sometimes it's a board member. They do trust and respect, to your point. The respect has to be there. And those individuals can have an outside influence. Um, the thing about Kalanick, again, with Uber is that his advisors couldn't get him to behave differently until it was too late. So some of this, you have to save these people from themselves. And if they heard that, they would probably laugh and say, well, we've created companies like Amazon and Tesla. I don't think we need to be saved from anybody. But if you look at Musk, he was walking a fine line for a while in terms of losing the confidence of regulators and shareholders. Um, he now has tempered his behavior and is acting more responsibly. But in some cases, you need a strong individual, maybe just one or two, who could tell that leader, you're not going to get what you want, to your point, if you continue to act this way. Yeah. Um, yes. And I it, that it's interesting that you say they have to trust that person. And that person needs to be fairly forceful themselves. Absolutely. Because in my experience, if you don't meet this force with force, then you just get railroaded right over the top of it. You've got to have your own set of confidence in talking to that leader. Is that fair? I would agree with that. I think in it varies leader whom they would look to for that advice. But the, the last thing you want is the leader to become isolated and so self-confident that he or she is closed off from input. That's the real risk. Back to your, your point about um, narcissism. Uh, they're so self-centered and so confident that they believe other people um, can't influence them in a productive way. Mm-hmm. And that's a very risky place to be. Right. Very risky. Okay. So let's do this in a slightly different way. Um, I can imagine a bunch of people listening to this say, I have a colleague who's like that (laughs) and I have to work with them. How do we, what's your advice for an average, ordinary, reasonably intelligent person, reasonably committed to the mission, but not obsessive? How do I work with a colleague, a peer who's obsessive? What's your advice? The main advice is to set some boundaries on what you're willing to do and and tolerate. So, for example, if the individual wants you to work Sundays when you're with family and you're not willing to do that, you have to be very clear that it's not something I'm going to do. And back to my earlier point about culture, it's all in the context of what the culture expects. So if you're in a culture that would support you, then that's entirely appropriate. If you're in a culture that expects you to work Sundays, then it's a little more difficult conversation. And setting those boundaries is important in terms of that leader not assuming that you're going to behave the way he or she does. Uh And that can be a tough conversation, but it's one that you have to have. The other thing you can do is in terms of if that individual to our earlier point is acting in a way that's dysfunctional, you can even provide feedback on how you're interpreting his or her behavior and how it's influencing you. And that can be helpful for the individual as well. Yeah. But if I've got somebody who's got a really strong ego and they're not listening. They don't take criticism. They don't pay attention to criticism. What do I do to make my feedback heard matter for this particular individual? Well, in some cases, you may have to come to the fact that you're not going to change them. Your feedback yes. is not going to matter. So then the question becomes, and back to the culture, is the culture the right one for you or is it the right one for that individual? And then you have to determine whether that individual is more in sync with the culture or you're more in sync with the culture. Mm -hmm. So part of the theme, and back to my earlier book about extreme teams, is the fit with the culture is all important. 
So, you know, back to the pushback, if the person is not going to change because he or she is wired that way, and back to our earlier discussion, that's often the case, then it's a decision is, do you want to stay in that team or does that individual need to stay in the team? And then how do you manage that effectively? Either decision. Right. I get that one. And especially if you've got a service-oriented company, frequently the mantra in that company is to serve clients at the expense of everything else, which leads you to ridiculous hours, long hours, long weekends, no respect for private time in any capacity at all, and expecting that you're going to have the same unrelenting pursuit in service of customers. And you sort of understand that because, you know, if it's not you, it's going to be a competitor. So, I kind of get that one. But at the same time, you know, there's this boundary line where that becomes ineffective, um, becomes more damaging to the organization, to, you know, reputation, to a whole host of other things. So, if I'm the manager now and I have an obsessive leader working for me, which I may love because you're going to deliver amazing results. So, it may be in my best interest to keep them going. What do I do to make them at their best and keep them from tipping into their worst? Well, one of the ways I talk about it is what's the combination of hard and soft within a particular culture? So if you look at the companies that I profile in some of my books, some of them are much harder places to work and tougher places. Netflix is an example of that. Others, such as Whole Foods, are a little more benign. But Mm -hmm. all of them combine the hard and soft. So some of this is determining what's the appropriate balance within a team or within a company. And if a person is tipping the balance one way or another, that's inappropriate, then you in essence have to give feedback and coaching. And in some cases, the person may not be the right fit for the company. So to your earlier discussion around if people are creating dysfunction, are they worth keeping? If that's in essence creating more damage to the company than not. And in terms of the balance with the person's life, uh, that's always a risk with obsessive cultures and obsessive leaders is they push too far for the right reasons in some cases. So, for example, for customers, as you mentioned, or in the case of Tesla, for the product. But the employees can become then secondary. And if you're not careful, you end up with a demoralized or fearful workforce. Okay. Um, so, any examples of managers who have successfully worked with an obsessive personality to help them get the balance right? for the good of the company? Well, my experience is you have to, to your earlier point, but be very direct and hard with them. So I gave you the example earlier of the marketing executive. And it didn't happen in this case, but someone needed to sit down with him and say, you understand the consequences if you don't change your behavior. And they said it, but not as directly or forcefully as they could have. And consequently, he ended up losing his job. So some of this is being very direct about what's expected, what's inappropriate, and then monitoring that. And I look at it as, and you probably have this experience as a coach as well, it's a shared responsibility between the manager and the individual. Right. The individual right. owns the majority of it. The manager also responsibility for giving very good feedback, very good advice. And if the person is not doing that, give them some um, anticipation that they're going to be dire consequences. So by, my net uh, recommendation is don't be soft around this. You have to be very direct and very hard. And the person has to understand that the behavior has to change if he or she is going to stay with the organization. That means you have to be a pretty strong manager yourself. Be willing to deal with the conflict and be able to deal with the consequences. Because the person may say, this is not a place where I want to continue to work. And you could lose a very talented leader. That's always the risk. But the larger context is, what do you want to achieve? If that person is creating more disruption than he or she is worth, then you have to make the tougher call. 
Okay. All right. I got that one. I've also seen um, these sorts of leaders run right around a manager that they felt was being weak in one capacity or another. And they can often retire in the organization where people appreciate the obsessiveness because they appreciate the results and aren't as close to the consequences and just cut that manager right out to the equation. Now, are you, do you see that as well? I do. You mentioned the word respect. For an obsessive individual who's focused on achieving something extraordinary, if you don't respect your supervisor, it's only a matter of time before either the supervisor is removed or you leave because you can't work for an individual like that. And the thing to keep in mind for these individuals, work is all important. They love their work as most people love their children or love their spouse. And even some of them refer to their organizations as their spouse. Um, They think about it that deeply. So you have to understand the centrality of work to them. And if they don't respect somebody, they're not helping move things along. It's a constant irritant to them. So it's different than most people view it. They, They view it. There's a social part of work and then there's a task part of work and there's a balance between this is heavily oriented to the task part of it. So if you can't deliver, then you become um, an impediment to them. It's an interesting one. Um, This notion about the task, and it's right back to your notion of singular focus, that the task becomes all-consuming. And then you see the need to surround people who are like that with really top talent, who can actually think critically, deliver, and stand up on their own opinion and not be... I'm going to use the word bullied in a way, not that these individuals necessarily bullying, but it can feel like that at times when you get that constant push, 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 push from someone who's wanting more and more. I would agree with that. That Part of that is you said they had limited patience and in essence, they'll cut very quickly to what they believe the answer is, but they expect some pushback. It's not, it's not narcissistic or egotistic to the point where they don't value the input because again, back to the work, at least in the best cases, they want the best solution. So if you're strong enough and you can push back and you have um, evidence that would support your point of view, they'll listen to that. In some cases, even um, own it as their own over time uh, rather than something you push back on. But that's to the end result that they want, which is to produce the best product or the best service. Um, The other thing I'd like to note though about obsessives is we've talked a bit about their impact on people around them. The other thing you have to note that their life isn't necessarily easy. Elon Musk says that most people admire him and uh, envision themselves in his role. And he says, if they lived my life for a week, they wouldn't want my life. The degree of sacrifice, the degree of stress. And even when I met my earlier example going into the plan, he goes, I didn't enjoy doing that. I did it because it has to be done. So that's the thing that a lot of people forget is they think that this is an individual who's running roughshod on the people around him or her, but their life isn't easy as well. In fact, one of the studies I mentioned in the book, if I can take a bit of a tangent. Yes, please. There was a um, study of zookeepers, mm-hmm. and the researchers wanted to know why they pursued their jobs. And what they found is they felt it was a calling. They were fated to be zookeepers. That wasn't something they decided, but in essence, they were pulled to it. And the other thing they found, which I found fascinating, is these people were taken advantage of because their supervisors knew they loved the work so much, they would work longer hours for less pay and have more demands placed on them than those who weren't as passionate about the work. So it may sound um, counterintuitive, but there's some sympathy for the people that have this because their life isn't easy, both in terms of the demands they place on themselves and the life they live, 
but also in some cases they're taken advantage of by others. It's not just them being difficult with their colleagues, yeah. but people realizing what they'll do and um, taking advantage of their commitment. Okay, so now I'm sitting here, as I always do with this one, and kind of running through, you know, checklist, like, do I, I, there's qualities of some of me, I think, that time that tip into the obsessiveness. I think all of my colleagues might agree with that on occasion. Um, So, if anybody's like me, how do we evaluate whether I am more of an obsessive personality or not? I would think if you look at what you value the most, and it's easy to fool yourself because there are a lot of social norms that you should value certain things, but in essence, have an honest discussion with yourself around what's most important to you. What would you be most proud of when you're 80, 85 years old and you look back on? And again, you have to be careful because people put expectations on you should value X, Y, or Z, but in your heart, what would be most satisfying to you? And answer the question, and Bezos puts it this way, what would you regret not doing? Mm-hmm. at that point. And if the answer comes back, there are certain things that value you value more than anything else, then that's probably closer to what your obsessive nature is. And again, I'm not saying everybody has this, but the people that have it, that's one way to clarify in their own mind what's most important to them. Okay. All right. So you're saying about these obsessive personalities that great things are achieved by obsessive leaders especially extraordinary things, amazing. And everyone benefits from that. That's, I mean, your point, some people may disagree about some of the firms I profile, but I think an objective assessment would be they've created, if nothing else, jobs. You might say, well, they took away jobs from other industries. That's true. But at the same time, they've promoted um, approaches and innovations that will benefit society. And they have built industries, too. I mean, if you look at Amazon, there's a whole uh, cottage industry that is existing on the back of Amazon that wouldn't have existed before. We could argue the pros and cons about them. But you can say they have created amazing things. Whether I like it or not, they've still created amazing things. Whether I like them or not, they've created amazing things. Well, if I can interrupt for a minute, think of uh, my bet is your phone isn't far from where you are now. That's true. Think of what Apple has done. And something along the lines of 80% of the people in the United States have smartphones. Apple's changed the way we live mm-hmm. and what we do with our phones. Now, we take it for granted now, just like we take Amazon for granted and we can get things in two hours. But these have changed our life or electric vehicles will change our life as well. So I have sometimes people go after these highly successful individuals and incredibly wealthy individuals. and They're not flawless. If you look at my books, I'm pretty critical of them. At the same time, you have to respect what they achieved. And my whole point is there's a quote in the book that I like, which is good requires motivation. Great requires obsession. These people have created great things. Mm -hmm. So a lot of value that these leaders can bring to the world, to the companies that they work for, to us and society. Okay. The secret is to be able to see the consequences of that obsessive behavior for the people that are working with you along the way and begin to temper that behavior a bit to avoid the worst of the consequences. I agree. Okay. All right. So now let's go to my next favorite topic, um, psychological safety. So everybody in the moment is talking about psychological safety. Amy Edmondson's research is amazing in this area, kind of highlighted because of Google's analysis of teams and looking at which teams really succeeded and didn't this brown psychological safety, safety. Help me understand the power of psychological safety in the context of working with an obsessive leader. Well, I have a bit of a contrary view on psychological safety, which is, I think it's overrated. And another way to put it is, 
you don't want a culture that's based on fear and people being unwilling to express a point of view or constantly um, being bureaucratic for fear of being fired or reprimanded if everything goes wrong. That I agree with. But in the other extreme, you need a tough environment where people are very direct. Now, the literature suggests that psychological safety results in more openness and better outcomes. But my belief is curved linear, meaning that to a certain degree, it's healthy. But if you have too much of it, it actually results in a workplace that is less effective. And there's some literature on trust that indicates that low levels of trust are dysfunctional, moderate to high levels of trust are optimal, but very high levels of trust result in poor performance. The reason is people become complacent. And my belief in psychological safety, the same thing if you're not careful, I'm not saying it's the intent, I'm not um, undermining the research that you mentioned, but you have to be careful that it doesn't become too excessive, that that becomes more important than the outcome you're trying to achieve. Right. The other way I think about it, if you put the concept of psychological safety in front of a Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, I think they would laugh. I think they would say, we're here to achieve something. We're not here to make people feel comfortable. And the people that uh, promote psychological safety would say, well, that's what we're after as well. The problem is I think it's misinterpreted at a point. So I think you have to be very careful with that. It's an interesting point. I really do have huge respect for Amy's research and for a lot of the intent behind it, because as you rightly said, having a culture where people are afraid to offer an idea is just not the right kind of culture for success. That just isn't going to work. But I have long believed that the companies that really can handle conflict are the ones that are going to really thrive. So when we can have that heated debate and know that it's for a good cause and it doesn't become a personal attack in one place or another, that's where we find the best solutions. So what's your view of what I just said? I agree with both of your points. The thing I would say though, part of it is not all ideas are equal. Right. So you want people to be comfortable voicing ideas, but if their idea is not based on sound data or if it's not based on logical thinking, then there's some criticism of that. So that to me is a healthy dialogue versus all ideas should be welcomed and embraced and people shouldn't feel concerned about voicing them. So it's a question of this hard, soft dynamic in cultures. You want both. And if you get to, I've worked with companies over my career where they're so harsh that people are afraid. That clearly is dysfunctional. But the other extreme where psychological safety becomes more important than the goal you're pursuing, to me, that's equally problematic. Okay. So this is still, we have a goal, we have a mission, we have a purpose, put whatever language you want around it. We have a thing we want to achieve. It matters that we achieve it. It's extraordinary if we can achieve it. And that's what drives for the hard, if you will, styles, the conflict management, the harder personalities, the obsessiveness. And I want that a little bit balanced with some softness, but not overwhelmed by softness so that I can bring people along with me. I do a reasonable job of capturing that. Well, the only thing I would say, rather than uh, some degree of softness, you want a sense of community. Mm -hmm. We're in this together. You use the notion of a, um, a, a common interest, which I like. You need to have a bond that we're pursuing this together. It is a community. So it's not just we're here, you're a means to an end, but we're pursuing a common goal. That to me is a sense of community. And if you don't have the sense of community, all this other work that we're talking about is much harder to achieve. So that's part of what you want the obsessive leaders to focus on is, and some of it's the people you select, some of it's how you position the company, some of it's the goals you're pursuing. Um, that's equally critical to some of the harder elements we've talked about. Okay. 
I like that idea that there's a sense of community. There's a thing that we're obsessively going after. It's going to be an extraordinary result. We're going to do it. And a lot of confidence in getting there. A willingness to listen to any idea that sounds well thought out, better than mine. Great. Bring it on in pursuit of achieving this goal. Yes. And then enough of the soft to build the community around that goal. So it's not just my singular goal that I'm doing, forget the rest of you. It's a goal that we are pursuing. Just a a quick story. When Steve Jobs introduced the Macintosh, he told a story that the team was sitting in the front row. He looked at the team at that point after years of 14-hour days and like all of them were crying. Ah, okay. Wow. And you might say they achieved something extraordinary collectively. Okay. Incredible. Robert, we're out of time. My guest today is Robert Shaw. The book that we've been talking about is All In, How Obsessive Leaders Achieve the Extraordinary. Fabulous to interview you. Thanks very much. And join us next week for more in getting out of your own comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.